سلام خوش آمدید مرحبا اهلا و سهلا سلام علیکم شراغلا Здравствуйте добро пожаловать Hello welcome to our podcast DLI FLC Lingo Everything that I like ends up being like Latin you know I have no Latin blood nothing no Latin ancestors and everybody asks me no I just like the music the language their movies colors probably mm. so everything that I have looks very Mexican to everybody I'm like yeah I think that's one of the things that speaks to the the universality of language I think you don't need to necessarily understand the language mm-hmm. it's more the rhythm of course speaks to you literally. Uh, but also sometimes it doesn't re- you know you don't need a translation the music just makes you feel a certain way you can you can sense like love and and passion and and frustration you know through music so I agree I, I love Latin music we're doing a podcast series on getting to know DLI each episode I'm interviewing a different group of people to give you an idea of what it's like to live and work here in Monterey I'm talking with three instructors. You just heard DLI Arabic instructor Pascal Coeus and French instructor Michael Hughes talking about their love of Latin music. Also with us in the studio is Russian instructor Julia Cabrina Coolidge. We'll go with Michael. Okay. Let's start with you. Tell okay. me about yourself. So my name is Michael Hughes. Um, I was a French teacher at DLI as well as a French student um, in the 90s. I don't really have much else to say that's interesting, but um, I'm, I'm a language aficionado, so to speak. I've always been enamored and infatuated with the idea of intercultural communication. I think even before people would have used that terminology, I, f- I feel like that people like uh, us, per se, a lot of DLI professors, we have kind of an innateness and a unique curiosity and, and a love of sharing that curiosity, I think, with our students. And so I was fortunate enough to enlist in the United States Navy and have the opportunity to come to DLI, which was a, an institute that I had no idea even existed. And so I think that what I can say about that experience is that it, it literally changed my life. The first time I met you, it was your ability with accents that totally caught my attention. Like um, the French accent that he did earlier. Oh, mm-hmm. and no, and then just in the middle of conversation, you broke into a Scottish accent. Yeah, Is that what it was? We're talking about Scotland, yeah. Yeah, because mm-hmm. didn't you backpack across Scotland? Um, backpacking is probably not the right word for it. Oh, uh, no, no, you have to do a <laughs> Scottish accent now. Let's <laughs> great. You're going to put me on the spot now. <laughs> That's great. It didn't do much backpacking in Scotland, but it did a lot of drinking whiskey. Um, so I do think that there's a connection um, between language and not so much the ability to, to do accents, but... I mean, really, at the end of the day, when you're learning a foreign language, you, you're, you're imitating someone else's sounds or another culture's sounds, if that makes sense. And so to some extent, I do think that there's a correlation between having what I think musicians refer to as a good ear and being able to at least reproduce language um, from the phonetic perspective, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And how many languages do you know? I've, I've, over my lifetime, I mean, you, you, I mean, we all speak so many languages. I mean, we're, there's so many hyperpolyglots at DLI, but, yeah. or, or polyglots, but I, I, I speak seven with, with some, some decent fluency. And, um, but I've studied more than that over, you know, even if it's books and, you know, uh, watching, watching online videos to, to, to learn some vocabulary before a trip or just curiosity about different cultures. So 
my whole life, essentially, I've been trying to amass a collection of expressions and conversational tactics in as many languages as possible. So I always joke, I say, how many languages do you speak? And my answer usually is not enough. <laughs> well, that's a good answer. I like that. Very good, Very good answer. Yeah. Pascal, tell me about yourself. Okay, so my name is Pascal Coelhas, and I'm originally from Beirut, Lebanon. I came to the U.S. to do my master's in San Diego, and then I graduated with master's in political science. So after a while, I won the green card lottery. So literally, I moved from a student to a green card holder. And I needed to find a job related to politics, and everything was on the East Coast. I'm like, no, I don't want to be on the East Coast. I need to find something in California. Literally, DLI was my first option where it says Department of Defense, and I'm like, this would look nice on my resume for a year or two, and then I'll figure it out. And it's been 17 years. So, yeah, DLI is good at keeping you, and I love this place. So, yeah. So, why didn't you want to go to the East Coast? I don't know. I never belonged to the East Coast. I am a Californian girl without even knowing it. So yeah, Have and as she had said, I lived almost half of my life here mm-hmm. and half of my life in Lebanon. Have you been to the East Coast? Have you traveled yeah, over there? Yeah, my brother lives there and I've been to DC too many times in New York, but I just feel that this is home for me, the West Coast. Yeah. So how many years in California altogether? 20. 20? Yeah. yeah. Do you have to ask me this question? Uh, now you know my age. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it speaks, I mean, it speaks to the uniqueness of this state. I mean, it's not without its faults. There's no doubt about it. I did not grow up in California. And I, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I came to California for the first time at 18 years old to come to DLI. I felt the same way. I mm-hmm. felt like I came home when I got here. And that's why I think DLI was such a transformative experience for me. I left, naturally, being in the military. You, you go and you do other assignments and... But there was something in me, you know, that, that had kind of a seed had been planted, so to speak. And I, I kept wanting to come back. And, and I realized, like, now as an adult, even if I leave California, um, I might have been born and raised in Florida, but I, I feel like I'm a Californian for sure. So I, I understand that completely. Same here. And mm-hmm. I, I sometimes joke about it. I'm like, there's a smell to California. I don't know how to explain it. But once I land here, and mainly in San Diego, I'm like, I smell California. There's something that makes it home. Even though I love Lebanon and I love home, but then <laughs> California is special. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're Such a great right. state. I love this state too. I mean, I've lived here more, more than 20 years now. You know how old I am. <laughs> but, but I love the fact that you can go swimming, you can go skiing, you can go wine tasting. I mean, there are just so many activities that you can do in this state. It's amazing. And of course, the price of living is high, but. I don't know. You, there's I a, guess you pay for the experience. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a there's a there's a tax, I suppose, that <laughs> for quality of life. I think we're pretty fortunate. I'd like to Indeed. be able to spend less money on rent, but that's a different conversation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal, tell me, um, how many languages do you speak? So I want to believe that I'm fluent in three languages, like very fluent, and then intermediate in Spanish, and I would love to learn Russian one day. So Arabic, English, French, and soon enough, uh, Spanish and Russian. Is the the French because of Lebanon? Yeah, I was in a French Catholic school all my life, so uh, for like 15 years I was in a French school in Lebanon. And then comes Arabic, and English is my third language. 
I, you know, the only thing I would ask, I'd be curious too, is do you consider the different uh, varieties of, of Arabic to be different languages? Or No, I count them as one. Mm-hmm. But if this is the question, then I'll have at least 20 languages. <laughs> 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 I understand most of them. But if you ask me to produce them, I'll always end up speaking with my Lebanese dialect. Mm-hmm. But I'm very familiar with the Iraqi dialect, Egyptian dialect. These are the main ones around me. Yeah, I've always been fascinated because, like, musically, when you hear Arabic, I've we have friends in common, of course. We know some of the same people, and mm-hmm. it's amazing. Like, they only need to hear a couple notes, and they know, up oh, Lebanon. Of course. Or, up oh, Egypt. Yeah, up oh, Jordan. It's yep. incredible, you know, only after a few a few words. So. We share music and we share food. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> These are the things we love the most about the area. Mm. <laughs> so can you tell uh, someone, let's say if somebody is speaking Arabic, can you tell right away that where this from? person comes from this particular region? Even within the same dialect, you would know where in the Levant, for example. Like, I would know if somebody is Syrian, if somebody is Jordanian, Palestinian, or Lebanese, while we call it over here Levantine. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, mm. no, totally. It's fascinating. Would you say it's because of the pronunciation or because of the lexical choices that the both, person makes? Both. both. Mm. Even sometimes the structure of the sentence would be different. Mm. Is that exist in Russian? Ah, uh, yes, definitely. I mean, if somebody speaks Russian, I can usually tell mm, after a minute or so what part of Russia they come from. Okay. Um, but I think it is probably universal. It's not just pronunciation, but also certain words certain expressions, uh, stress uh, on a certain syllable. Mm. Um, And vowels too, And vowels, yes, definitely vowels. So it can tell somebody, you know, apart. Someone comes from Moscow versus from Siberia or something like that. Mm. And I'm not saying that I'm very familiar with all the dialects. So, you know, I come from the um, central part of Russia, not far from Moscow. So I'm not as familiar with, like, the region in the far east, for example. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You've, have you ever mm. been to the Kamchatka Peninsula? I have not, but I'd <laughs> I love was to fascinated go. by the idea of it. I don't know. It looks amazing. <laughs> never been there, never been to Siberia. Mm. But uh, I think it would be fun to take a Trans-Siberian Railway someday. That's, my, something that's one that of my dream trips, yeah. Something that I'd love to do in the um, future, for sure. The Orient Express. Yes. No murders. No murders. <laughs> what? Where does the Trans Siberian? I almost said orchestra. Where does the express take you? Like, what does that cover? I think it depends on which one it is, but uh, some of them cover Mon- Mongolia, yeah. China. Then it goes through Russia, through Siberia, and then um, I think my hometown, which is Nizhny Novgorod. I don't know exactly all the stops. But I believe it takes about two weeks from start to finish. Oh, wow. Just one way. One way. I mean, the idea, too, I know a lot of people. Oh, I shouldn't say, excuse me. I don't know a lot of people who have done it, but I I know many people who do it, rather, that you can kind of piece it together, too. You can sort of stop. And, you know, if you want to stay in Ulaanbaatar, for example, Mm. for a a few days, you know, and experience Mongolia, the capital, and, you know, keep moving on. Yeah, it just seems like an incredible trip. And some people do it both ways, so like a round trip. But I think mostly it's usually just one way because it takes such a long time. Yeah, yeah. There is an orchestra, too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They've been touring. I have seen the ads (laughs) on social media. (laughs) 
let's talk about where you're from and how you got here, Julia. So, <laughs> I am originally from Russia, uh, from Nizhny Novgorod, which used to be called Gorky uh, before the breakup of the Soviet Union. I came to the U.S. originally in 1994 as a student, an uh, exchange student, uh, actually as a part of the program called Freedom Support Act. Um, and then I went back to Russia and then came back several years later, uh, got my master's um, in California. I've lived in California, actually, longer than I've lived in Russia. Uh, and then uh, also got my doctoral degree at Middlebury College, not here in Monterey, but in uh, Vermont. And that was my life pre-DLI. <laughs> and I've been a DLI for the last four years. In fact, um, Michael and I went through our ICC, ICC together. together. I think that's where sure. we met. So the, Army, the Army has battle buddies, and we have, we have ICC buddies. Yeah, we have ICC <laughs> buddies, which was actually four years. If yeah, I exactly. remember correctly, it was ago. four years ago. Yes, four years Almost ago, to the exactly. Day. Yeah. Oh, um, for people who don't know, explain what ICC is. Uh, ICC is a course for uh, new teachers, new, not new to teaching, but new teachers at DLI that goes over the principles of language teaching. And uh, you also get to learn about different exams and tests that students uh, take as a part of their uh, DLI experience in the basic course. Um, I believe before it was about for three weeks, maybe when we did it. I think that I think. sounds about right. Three weeks, a month, know. four weeks, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think now the structure is slightly different, but uh, again, it's been it's four years for us. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've taught languages before, but certainly experience, my experience here teaching uh, Russian uh, at DLI, and I'm currently not teaching. I'm in the uh, admin position. I'm a department chair in the Russian uh, school. But uh, the experience of teaching language at DLI, I think, is uh, quite unique. So having experiences teaching a language at the university and college level and then at DLI, I think, really um, helps you look at um, language teaching in a different manner. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's amazing to see how dedicated the students here are and how much time they spend a day uh, learn, learning languages. So I uh, would certainly appreciate that, that effort and the motivation and realizing how difficult it is as language learners uh, to keep that motivation going. DLI has been very kind to me, but probably the moment I remember the most is the moment I'm like, proud of is the first graduation I had. In 2005, those students, when they graduated, I don't know why I had tears in my eyes. Their families were here, their parents, their friends, their, everybody, and they were so happy and proud. But it takes really a village to have these students graduate. And it takes, as my colleague was saying, a lot of effort, a lot of motivation, going through the course here as a soldier and a student is intense. Mm. So probably this is my favorite deal I, I cry I cry at every graduation <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean really even ones I haven't um, I've been to a couple graduations with students I didn't teach per se just to kind of you know join in the camaraderie support colleagues and I mean the commandants there you know announcing these are the award winners and some some of these students have a list of accomplishments that's mm -hmm. it's astronomically and it's just incredible um, what they what they've done and then they on top of all that of course their DLI work they graduate at the top of their class sometimes with incredible scores. And I mean, you know, like you said, their parents are there, their parents are crying. I mean, you can't help yeah, but, you know, right. get emotional. It's a lot of, it's a, it takes a village, but geez, I mean, it, the psychological and emotional connection I think that, that uh, we have to our work is, 
is very unique in the in the world of academia, I think, anyways. Yeah, well, it's clear that you all love to teach, which is, I mean, I feel like that's really important. But um, I, I just, I love to see the passion that you guys have for your students. That's beautiful. Julia, tell me about what you like to do on your, your time off. My time off? You mean like weekend? Let's say. Yeah, let's go with that one. Weekend. With weekend. Um, I like to do some exercise, some sports usually. Uh, it could be running or it could be biking. And of course, there are so many beautiful areas where you can bike here and just going down the Pebble Beach, 17-mile um, drive. It's, there are so many beautiful places. Um, so that's something that I would like love to do if I have time on the weekend. Um, I really, really miss Osseo Theater um, that closed, unfortunately, yes. the one downtown yeah. that used to be in downtown Monterey uh, because it had a lot of uh, foreign films and independent films. Um, we used to go there all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, I don't know what the future of it is, but I heard that it closed and it's it did, not yeah, going to reopen. So um, reading coffee, exercising, uh, maybe sleeping a little bit, even though it's hard to sleep in these days because you only set schedule, you know, coming to work <laughs> at 7.45. So I'm definitely a morning riser now. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, like I said before, I think there are so many different things that you can do here. And I never run out of ideas, you know, if I have time. It's just a matter of actually having time and finding time for everything that you want to do. So it never gets boring. Studying foreign languages is another thing, and I actually keep postponing. Um, I know uh, Michael and I talked about German quite a bit before, even during our ICC. It's one of my languages, and I'd love to spend more time, maybe on the weekends, trying to bring it back, um, you know, so that you're actually able to converse and... Uh, yeah, but das ist nicht immer möglich. Wir das haben, ist nicht wir haben immer viel möglich. Zu tun. Immer zu viel zu tun, aber ich versuche natürlich das natürlich. vielleicht in der Zukunft, wenn ich die Zeit dafür habe. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so Pick that's... something easier. Spanish. <laughs> 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 yeah, Spanish comes in handy for yes. sure, especially in California. How many languages do you speak? So Russian is my first, of course. English is my second. German is my third. And I've taken Spanish, but only for two semesters. Um, mm -hmm. When I was teaching English as a second language, I had a lot of students who came from Mexico. So I feel like my understanding of Spanish is actually way better than my ability to speak. But uh, I think it could be possible to bring it back if I invested myself. So, хорошо. <laughs> well, what do you like to do on your time off? I like it when you say time off. Downtime. Yeah, <laughs> it depends on like when am I getting this time off. Like if you tell me just now, maybe what I need is a day at the spa in Pebble Beach. But if you're saying like on the weekend, I have so many hobbies. She stole most of mine, but from <laughs> hiking, biking, tennis at the Mission Ranch. Uh, all the creative projects, you can just like put me in any of them, from mosaic to photography. Um, I just love artistic stuff and anything related to nature. And so the, I'm just thinking when you said color, like the Latin colors, is that part of it too, your artistic? If you, if you come to my house one day, you will see that I have my walls painted, like one that is red, another side that is like black, upstairs is blue. So I love colors in general. And yeah, like the Latin culture in general, 
um, is very similar to my lifestyle. I don't know if it has anything to do with my friend school that I mentioned before and um, lifestyles, families, values, and all of that. We have so much in common with the Latin uh, culture, and I've never been to Latin America. So this is a place that I really want to discover. With the exception of Mexico, I really am missing out on Argentina, Peru, um, Bolivia, Colombia, and all of these places. But I love the food. We were talking about it earlier, uh, the music, and everything about it. Okay. How about you? What do you do on your downtime? Well, again, we have we have DLI in common. We have our passion for language in common. So it's not uh, a surprise to hear that I, too, enjoy some of the same activities. I think an ideal weekend for me, uh, sleeping in is kind of nice. You know, there's no doubt about it. But uh, we're so lucky to live here. You mentioned Carmel. Uh, you mentioned Mission Ranch, for example. You have Carmel Valley. You've got Big Sur just down the road. I mean, you know, you can go on a... I, I often go after work sometimes just to see the sunset to take a walk. But ideally, I like to take a, a hike in Big Sur, a walk along the ocean. Mm-hmm. Pascal mentioned the smell. I mean, for me, too, it's it's so intrusive in the best possible way. The smell of the, the ocean. We're so lucky, too. We have fresh air and cool breezes and clean blue skies and and yeah the fog too i like that but um i so, love the fog yeah me too I mean, <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's in my i think it's in my dna uh, you know but um so uh, a nice hike in big sur or at least a nice walk outside um lots of fresh air and vitamin d and i'm not gonna lie that i also enjoy the fact i think yulia mentioned the the vineyards and that the wine tasting opportunities that surround us whether they're here in monterey county un- incredible paso robles is an hour and 45 minutes away napa is yeah. two and a half hours mm-hmm. away so yeah i enjoy drinking what california what comes out of the, the, <laughs> the earth here in california as well and so uh you guys mentioned where the vacation do you want to do. So, Michael, let me hear what kind of vacation, um, where you want to go. I miss, um, and part of this is the the change in life from being kind of your, your, your lost youth and becoming an adult. I miss real adventure. And what I mean by that is that, you know, as adults, we take vacations because we have limited amounts of time off. And it's kind of really hard to, to go on a on an adventure, and by that I mean something kind of rugged, you know, so, I mean, the trip that comes to mind for me that, that would fit that description anyways in the past would be India. I've only ever been once, but I spent uh, almost seven weeks there, uh, really just sort of w- walking and hiking and exploring the country with one of my best friends, and we, we did and saw so many wonderful things, but that it's a grueling trip. It's, it's not a vacation, per se. It's really an adventure, and I miss that. And as I said, part of that is being an adult is just the, the lack of time. But um, I'm a big kind of, <laughs> we don't really do it anymore, but get out the map, kind of, you know, put your finger somewhere, and let's, let's go find out what, you know, what it has to offer. Okay, so I want to make sure that we get this in because it's very important to me. I want to talk about the different cultures. <laughs> uh, let's start with um, Russian um, because it was just so much fun reading about all the, the differences between the American culture and the Russian culture. Um, so give me one, just one thing that's different that might be a little bit harder for Americans to understand. doesn't translate as well. So we're talking about culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there are so many different examples, but if I were to pick one, 
Um, okay, so it, it seems to me that in Russia, it's polite to say no. When, when um, for example, when somebody offers you something, even if you want it, you're not going to say, oh, yes, definitely, let me, yeah, I want it, give it to me. A person may say, no, no, thank you, but then you offer them something again. And they may say, oh, no, no, it's okay. But then you offer it again and they say, thank you. I w and they would take it. Even if you're just sitting at the table, let's say if you're having a meal together. May I give you a little bit of the salad? Oh, no, no, it's okay. But please have some more. No, 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 it's okay. Okay, I'll have some more. <laughs> but in the U.S., it's kind of the other way around. If you don't, if you say no, nobody's going to offer it to you again. So you yeah. better be quick. And if you want something, say yes, <laughs> because you may not be offered it again. And again, this is kind of like an abstract example, I think. But I often think about it, um, especially when I come uh, in contact with the Russian culture or with American culture, uh, or when there is this culture clash, for example, when there are Americans and Russian present, you know, and sitting at the table. So you notice those little... Uh, you know, details and intricacies mm -hmm. in their communication styles. And since I mentioned sitting at the table, then, you know, I think of celebrations. And another thing that comes to mind is uh, giving flowers. Uh, and I don't know if you know about this. Maybe you have heard, um, well, in Russia, the number of flowers is really important. Odd versus even. So if you're going to someone's birthday party, you want to give them an odd number of flowers because an even number of flowers is usually reserved for sad events such as funerals. Wow. So if you're going to give a bouquet to your girlfriend, you know, bouquet of roses for Valentine's Day, give seven, nine, 11 roses, but don't give eight, 10, 12, etc. Interesting. So. Like for the food, we have so much in common, but for the flowers, like if you're going to give somebody flowers, make sure it's not like, 12, give them 24. You have to be generous in the Arabic culture. <laughs> but for food, like try to be at somebody's house, let's say my mom's house, and she made the bully for you, she's trying to offer it for you, and you say, no, thank you. That's like offensive. You have to try it. She's going to be like, no, no, like try a little bit. And in our culture, it's just out of love that they're giving you food, and they really want to feed you, even though you just had dinner. It doesn't matter. So you just want to say, oh, thank you, and try it. So in here, I know what happens to my friends when they come and visit, or if my mom is around, or anybody who's Lebanese, we overdo this. And Americans would be like, I just ate, and it's just weird. I think it's just something uh, typical in Russia, too, like offering people, you know, please have some more, yes, please, please have some, because Russians really are very hospitable and people, same. and you're not going to leave table hungry. Well, I mean, the, the, the only thing that sounds different is that maybe the good news is that you're starting off with smaller portions, perhaps, in, in, yeah, in your respective true. culture. <laughs> yes. Whereas, as you know, in the United States, a typical plate size is already a meal for four or five. <laughs> so so it's, I'm, I'm being a bit uh, facetious. But. Yeah, but even in the Arabic culture, let's say I'm inviting the three of you, I will be cooking for 25. Mm -hmm, so that's mm -hmm. expected of me. Mm -hmm. And if you're just like not eating from everything, that's just weird. Like you yeah. need to try all of them. I made this for you. And you're like super full. Oh, no, you like still that. have to take this. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're not going to get out of this. You know, it's really funny. Um, I work with um, the two people, two people who are from uh, former Yugoslavia. And they're talking about how this is this is the same thing for them, too. Um, Dushan was saying that he has to, whenever he goes to get flowers, he always has to, um, give one away 
<laughs> so that he can hand someone odd flowers, odd number of flowers. Yeah, it's like a dozen of roses, right? Which yes. is 12. So, yeah, yeah. given somebody a dozen of roses, someone from Russia can pull one out. You know, in America, they're like, where, where's, where'd my rose go? <laughs> Something's missing. What's, what's wrong? 11 roses, what? And like, who did you see on your That's way here? <laughs> so, uh, tell me about um, something from, from Lebanon. Or like from Arabic culture in general. That uh, doesn't really translate as well. Okay, so... Um, well, I'm not sure where this whole thing originated from, but the Arabic or the Middle Eastern culture do not deal well with the sole of your shoes. Showing the sole of your feet is a sign of disrespect, as they're considered the dirtiest part of the body since they touch the ground. So uh, don't face the sole of your feet towards your host or anyone in particular, because it may seem very rude yeah. and disrespectful. So I... Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you this uh, about a Rashid Hotel in Baghdad. In Baghdad, it used to be known for its mosaic at the entrance, and they depicted President George Bush, the father. And I'm like, what, why would they have President George Bush on the ground? So realistically, it was to insult him in a way. They were walking on his face, oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. it didn't translate yeah. well to me. Then I remember on the news when uh, we had the invasion in Iraq, the U.S. soldiers made sure to destroy it because they understood later on this concept. I'm telling you this story because um, a while back, I had... Um, 4th of July event in my backyard. And I was so proud of it, and I was so happy. Everything was decorated, all the American flags I had. And I had bought Converse shoes to match my like blue, white, and red clothes. But my Converse shoes had a US flag on them. And then my dad saw them, and he's like, why are you putting the flag on your shoes? And I'm like, what? These are for today's like backyard event. And I felt that he was so feeling awkward and kind of insulted. And I, it really didn't matter that I tried to explain it to him. He said, no, can you please take them off? Like, it didn't fly. Aww. So this is one thing with shoes, yeah. feet, and mm. respect. Yeah, mm. that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in Florida, where I grew up, <laughs> since I, I'm not French or Canadian, uh, uh, we, we have a joke, you know, there's a lot of signs that you, you, you'll get used to seeing in Florida, which is, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. <laughs> Um, which I suppose speaks to the culture is that uh, where I grew up on the East Coast, anyways, in Cocoa Beach, um, you see a lot of bare feet and a lot of bare chests. And uh, it's just kind of part of it's just part of the, the charm, I suppose. I grew up spending most of my childhood either on the beach or a pool deck. So with mm -hmm. bare feet pretty much everywhere you go. But I always joke about that. In, in Florida, it's the opposite. You know, you got shoes on, you got a shirt on, get out of here. <laughs> but that does occur to me, though, that um, you can't put your feet up on, you know, like anything, right? Like on the desk and the yeah. teacher is there and they would be so offended. Then the American student would be like, what just happened? Like, how? Yeah. So we always have to explain that. No, you can't. You can't it's, put your feet. It's a common the theme, I think. You know, that reminds me of Thailand. We were talking about Thailand earlier, which is, you know, another incredible journey. And I taught French and English there for a period of time. And that's the same in Thai culture, for example. Same concept. You know, your, mm -hmm. your feet are the lowest part of your body. And uh, your head, obviously, is the, the sort of pinnacle, so to speak. So you don't, you don't touch anybody on the head, naturally, because it's the, it's the, it's the most important part. And really? uh, so, yeah, you don't pat, you can't pat kids on the head. I mean, that would be, that's a big no-no. 
Um, we don't have this, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then feet, it's the same. You cannot put your feet up. You can't mm -hmm. point your feet, especially at anybody, which is a really unique thing. It's not so much the sole of your foot. Mm -hmm. It's just your feet pointing at people, which is an interesting thing. And I remember, and again, it's sort of an innateness as an American, and perhaps it's a bit part of our, our sloppiness. We're, I, I don't want to say that in general, but we... A lot of the old superstitions and these kinds of things have kind of, you know, been diluted over the years in the United States. And we are kind of lackadaisical when it comes to putting our feet up and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, anyway, I, I was talking to the students and I had my desk chair pulled out. And for me, it was sort of a, a sense of comfort. I just sort of put my foot up on my chair. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but we've all done it. And I mean, all 40 kids in that classroom audibly gasped, you know, <laughs> you know and covered their face like, oh my God. And so, but these are these learning experiences. And I think sometimes, whether it's language, making mistakes and learning from your mistakes, or with culture, you might be offensive unintentionally so. And you, you know, you learn from these experiences. Yeah. Okay, so tell me something about the language, uh, French language, that is, um, that is a little bit more difficult. French is such a unique language, and we were joking about it earlier. I think people refer to it as the, you know, the international language of love, and uh, I think you can <laughs> you can agree or not. Uh, um, it, it's 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 generally regarded as a beautiful language. It's an important language. It has a rich history. Um, I, I constantly have to remind my students and everybody that speaks English that fifty percent—that's a huge number of our vocabulary in English—comes directly from French, uh, which is a fascinating. Uh, thing if you really stop and think about it. And I could go on and on about that, but I won't. So one of the most unique things, I think, in French for, that's hard for students who have experience, say, with other languages, in particular, I can compare it to other Romance languages, is that you must use a subject pronoun in French. So in Spanish, for example, since we've all studied Spanish and have some familiarity with you, conjugate the verb, it's, in, it's inflected for the, the speaker, right? Uh, and so if I say hablo español, I don't need the subject pronoun. Right? I, don't, I don't have to say yo hablo español, it's almost redundant. Mm -hmm. Whereas in French, because of the spelling, the orthography, <laughs> and the pronunciation, I can't just say parle français because <laughs> je parle, tu parles, il parle, elle parle, on parle. Il parle, elle parle. <laughs> it's all the same. So if I say parle français, the first thing somebody that, uh, that speaks French is going to be like is who, who, what, what. So, so the subject pronouns is a, is a strange thing and you, you, you need to use them. And then the spelling, of course, I think throws a lot of students off. There's lots of um, unique sounds and uh, diphthongs and X's that uh, have historical um, you know, significance, the circumflex accent, which yeah. is a, a fun one. It's kind of sometimes we call it the, the carrot or the, the little the triangle over uh, certain vowels in French. And typically wait, wait, it, is it an actual triangle or is it just a carrot? Uh, it's it's like uh, I don't you know uh, it's like, like it's a, a V shape, a V shape backwards. upside down, an inverted V. Yeah. So Dushan's name has that yes. carrot on. I say it's angry eyes. That's the other one. Uh, yeah. The Slavic one is they mm -hmm. flip it up, right? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, but, oh, so the French one is the triangle. It's a hat. Correct. There okay. you go. A hat. I should have thought of that with Portuguese before it's a hat. <laughs> so you have to have uh, shapes. In yeah. <laughs> but this is one of those things, etymologically speaking, that I think is so fascinating about French and its relationship to Latin and the other Latin languages. So, for example, I'll give you a uh, common one would be everyone's favorite word would be fête. Une fête. Fête, which is spelled uh, F-E, this accent circonflex, T-E, well, it just means party, yeah. right? So yeah. une fête is a party. Yeah. But there you see 
the histor the history behind it is that many of the words in medieval French uh, or uh, had an s there, and so that word would have in old French would have been fest, right? Mm-hmm. And then you you think of its connection to of course fiesta mm-hmm. in Spanish, festa in Italian, festa in Latin, and of course feast in English. Mm-hmm. So there's that example of we we say the word feast, mm-hmm. a big meal. It's mm-hmm. an English word, but. That's a common word straight from French. Okay, I have to go back to this because I thought uh, English is a Germanic language, right? So how is it? To, walk me through this. <laughs> this is probably Julia's area of expertise. There's a there's a connection historically, of course, between the origin of English as a language. What English looked like and sounded like prior to 1066 is probably a lot more Germanic. In fact, I think it would look something like uh, Icelandic or probably a bit mm-hmm. more maybe like Danish or Norwegian in, in essence, at least visually, right, lexically. Are you and, talking about the etymology of each word? Yeah, I mean, the Nordic origins of a lot of these words, some Celtic mm-hmm. loan words. Then you have the invasion of England by William the Conqueror in 1066, mm-hmm. And herein is this in invasion, essentially, not only of people and culture, but language. And so from that moment on, English language changed uh, f- for all intents and purposes dramatically. And that's what I was saying earlier. So when you look at 50% of your vocabulary coming from one language, and especially in modern English where we're using hundreds of different languages every day, mm-hmm. essentially, to, to build up our vocabulary, that's pretty remarkable. I think words of German origin in English, maybe it's about 25%. Mm-hmm. And there's really not much um, syntactically uh, in common. There's no more declensions, really, right. of course, mm-hmm. which is, there you go, there's your area of expertise. <laughs> I will decline. <laughs> I know nothing about the declensions. the declensions, yeah. I think it has to do with the Indo-European roots, though. You know, that's the reason why there are so many common common roots, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that we can find in Russian, in English, in German, um, because if you if you look at the common, you know, common vocabulary, you know, I mean, there are so many, I can't think of any specific examples now, but there are so many words that sound similar in many languages. Voda, vasa, water, it's a little weird in French. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, this is aqua, aqua. Wait, what is it in French? Oh. Water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, oh. So you see it on perfume, like mm-hmm. eau de toilette. Eau de toilette, yeah, right. Like oh. Speaking of which, this is where you were saying the pronunciation is the strange part. Try to go to Macy's and buy Allure from the <laughs> Chanel. <laughs> right, right. Because we, like over here, you took the French words, for example, but you didn't, you totally changed the pronunciation. Yeah. So try to go to Paris Bakery and ask for a croissant. Right. And I'm like, um, a croissant. If you don't croissant. make it croissant, or a croissandwich. Allure becomes allure, allure after like 10 minutes of explaining. I'm like, okay, yeah, oh, this one. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, in essence, it's a Germanic language. We, we tend to, I think, and that's for historical purposes, we group languages together based on, um, you know, uh, the, their, their commonality, of course, with the, the shared languages. So, uh, spo- you know, English shares its origins with German, Dutch, Norwegian, Icelandic, uh, Swedish. Uh, and, um, and then, of course, we were talking, Pascal, right? We were talking about language variety. Mm-hmm. So there's Hochdeutsch and, right, there's uh, the, uh, 
the Frisian, the Bavarian, I mean, these Austrian are all, German. Austrian German. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you so, it, yeah. and then to some extent, I think that's where you get, you know, and, and English has it too, right? We tend to look at it as, you know, broad, you know, in, British English, American English, Australian English. But I think now, I mean, English is such a global language that I think there's Russian English, for lack of a better, mm-hmm. you know, terminology. Is really? I mean, I, 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 I would say so. I guess you... you is it like I mean, there's like so many speakers of English in Russia, right? Not right. Who study it, let's say. Right. So lots of Russians speak English. Certainly probably a lot more Americans than speak Russian. Other yeah, than I would DLI. say so, yes. In Russia, though, if you're studying English, usually it's going to be the British variant. Like, okay. for example, when I studied in Russia at the university, I mean, British English was the norm. And then we had one class that was like, specialized, and it was American English. <laughs> So there was a lot of emphasis on pronunciation yeah. and American sure. idioms, and they always felt very special. But again, that was, you know, back in the day, I'm not sure exactly how it's done now at, the, at my uh, university. So what do, what do you prefer? Do you like a bottle of water or do you like a <laughs> bottle of water? Water or water? You know, you know I, I, don't, I don't discriminate. I like them. I really do like them both. I do love how British English sounds, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Whenever I have a chance to watch like Downton Abbey, I don't know if you're familiar with the <laughs> show. So. I, you know, it's, it's always so pleasant to the ear. But again, American English, and there are so many varieties of American English too. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, I mean, language is language. It's, I think it's beautiful and then all the forms. Yeah, and it's always changing. Yeah. Yes, it's always I mean, that's evolving. The other thing. It's, it's exactly. constantly in flux. Especially we see it with I mean some of the young students we teach. Sometimes depending on what part of the country they come from in the United States, but there is kind of like a, a hip lexicon, yes. and mm-hmm. I am not hip, so I'm like, what? <laughs> what? That means what exactly? So, um, I mean, you're con- we're, we get to learn too as teachers. I think sometimes our students, you know, kind of teach us Definitely. some new vocabulary to incorporate. Mm-hmm. Even as native speakers, you know, because I've lived here for quite a long time now, and even though I go back to Russia, I don't go back often enough, I think. But it, when I go back, I get to learn some new, new slang, vocab. some new mm-hmm. terms that I have never heard before. Yeah. So it's it's a really fascinating because you think of yourself as a native speaker of that language, but because you lived in another country for so long, mm-hmm. it's like you are a little bit detached already. And that's why keeping in touch with the culture, I think, is really important, especially for language instructors like I we learned are. that from my younger cousins who are like <laughs> 16 and 17. They have all the new vocab that I need every time I go. <laughs> and then, yeah, text messaging yes. and uh, uh, certain oh, symbols yeah, and, yeah. and shortcuts. And it's a it's another language mm-hmm. altogether. How so. much text has changed the language mm-hmm. using the phones? Well, I mean, sometimes I'm afraid we're heading back to the inside of a pyramid. We're going to all be communicating with hieroglyphs. <laughs> 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 I can use like four or five emojis and you understand perfectly what I'm, what I'm saying, you know. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But uh Okay, Pascal, give me some oddities in um, Arabic. Um, I think it's funny, like one of the kind of strange concepts that we try to explain to students is the word inshallah. It's very common to use in the Middle East, whether you're Christian or Muslim. So it's an answer to almost anything. But you try to explain what inshallah means. Inshallah literally translates to if God wills it. So if you're telling me, do you want to go with me to the movies tonight? I can say literally, inshallah. But you'll never understand if I mean yes, if I mean no, if I mean maybe, it may mean never. So you want to really read between the lines or like from the sound. Students enjoy the word inshallah and they keep on using it everywhere. So this is one of the funny things, I think. 
Well, yeah, I would I translate that is, um, you know, as long as it, it hopefully it will happen, and if God wills it, I'll be there. That's I assume that's a yes. <laughs> yeah, but it can be a totally no. Yeah. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. inshallah, I'll go with you to San Francisco this weekend. But it's. Yeah. It's a no. I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. That's what, like I never studied Arabic, but you know, when you're a DLI student or teacher, you know, over years you kind of glean certain expressions. And when I was a DLI student, I learned a few Russian words and Russian expressions mm-hmm. and Arabic expressions. And I mean, I learned Inshallah for the first time when I was a DLI student in the '90s, and yeah, I still yeah. remember it. Inshallah. So it's one of the first things you you learn. Yeah. 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 Really interesting. So it's really con context defined, right? So it depends on the context and it could mean yes. It can be whatever you want. No, whatever you want to be. Isn't it true too? you blame it on Allah afterwards. That, uh, <laughs> Allah means God. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to say, so isn't it true that so we think of Allah, you know, uh, as Allah and uh, regardless of your religion, if you're, you know, Zoroastrian or, <laughs> or Christian or uh, or, or Muslim, um, don't Allah, isn't it a, a common response to to asking somebody how they are? Isn't it the alhamdulillah? Alhamdulillah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, like I know there's a misconception here that Allah is the God in Islam, but Allah literally means God. So it can be anybody, and you ask mm-hmm. them, I don't know, in Turkey or in Lebanon, it's not just the Arabic language, there's always the mashallah, inshallah, smallah. You always bring Allah to any conversation, mm-hmm. but only to say, like, yes, thank to God, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to go to movies? Yes, if Allah wills it. But you don't always mean it. So that's the cultural part, where people just use inshallah as an answer, and then you never know what they mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in some languages, too, I mean, the, the concept of God, you know, we were talking about German. I mean, if you go to Austria, of course, I mean, you can say Zeus. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people still say Grüß Gott. Grüß Gott. Oh. Yeah, as, a, as a greeting. As a greeting, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is literally, doesn't it mean greet, greet, greet God? God yeah. Literally, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Grüß Gott. I've never heard that before. Yeah. The Austrian. Yeah, Grüß Gott is very common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, literally greet God. Yeah, I heard Zeus in there somewhere. Ah, that's Grüß. Grüß. Yeah, it means oh, gr- greetings. Grüße aus Deutschland. Yeah, greetings from Germany. Greetings from Deutschland. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so you can say grüß dich. Grüß dich. Yeah, which is greet you. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Grüß dich. Genau. Yep. But it's quite polite. <laughs> How do most people say hello in Germany these days? Guten Tag. Guten Tag. Yeah, guten Abend. Guten Abend, guten, guten Morgen. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, it depends on the time of day. Hello, yeah. Hey. Young people probably say hey. Yeah. English influence. This was, you want to talk about a funny cultural difference really quick. My first, the reason I have such an affinity or uh, attraction to German and Germany was, that was the first country I visited as an American outside of the United States. And you want to talk about a cultural lesson. Me being American and having just studied German in high school, mm-hmm. Deutsch aktuell eins, <laughs> you know, which I still remember the dialogues. Um, I'm saying hello to everybody in the street, you know. Grüß dich, grüß dich, hallo, wie geht's? And I mean, the look of shock on my friend's you know, mother. And it kind of went on and they didn't say anything because it's sort of the German way, like, you know, they're, 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 they're quite polite in that regard. And I think, you know, they knew it was my first time in, in Germany and... But eventually my friend basically had to say, like, can you please stop saying hello to everybody? Because we don't do that here. Like, you don't greet strangers. And, you know, as an American, we get made fun of sometimes because we're very casual with, we're casual with I love you. We're casual with, like, just saying hi to strangers. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting thing. I wouldn't say shock, culture shock. But, yeah, when you're 18 and you're trying to 
make a good impression and somebody tells you like <laughs> calm down <laughs> you don't talk to strangers um you know that was an interesting lesson for me and like and again i carry like i've carried that with me ever since so of course if i'm in germany <laughs> I don't say anything. I don't say anything. <laughs> Just like in Russia, you know, that's actually very similar to how you would act in Russia. I had a very similar experience in the way, but opposite when I came to the U.S. from oh, Russia, when I was also 18. Um, I came to Virginia as an exchange student, and I was in a little town of um, Lynchburg. Oh, wow. Which is about is a like three hours maybe from D.C. Yeah. And so here I am, you know, just got there. My first time in the United States, and I studied English in Russia. It was my major. So I walk around the street, and, you know, people are smiling at me. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you normally <laughs> won't do. So just like I'm walking, and then you're walking towards me, and you have a smile on your face. <laughs> so I remember this very odd feeling. I thought maybe there was something wrong. Maybe I'm wearing different socks, or I forgot, I don't know, some, there is something odd about me. Why is this person looking at me and smiling? And I have not forgotten that feeling. But then, you know, I started reflecting about it, and I realized that it's just, you know, just a cultural difference. Second like Russia, this is not something that, and again, that was back in the 90s, but we usually don't like, walk around and smile and <laughs> say hello. <laughs> with me when, not when I came here, but every time I have a visitor or somebody visiting from Lebanon, and they'll be like, how come you know everybody? I'm like, I don't know anyway. <laughs> like, you'll be in a supermarket, and people tend to say, hello, how yeah. are you? Hello, yeah. and smiling yeah. at you. And people will be like, you know all of them? Then I realized that, yes, where I come from, you don't just greet people. You don't say, excuse me, every two seconds. Like, what did you do? I'm like, nothing. I'm just passing next to them. <laughs> so, yeah, these things are for a foreigner. Like, for me, they're just the way I live now. But for anybody visiting from overseas, mm-hmm. they're just, like, weird. Jim Martin, our recording studio and audio programming guru. Also, thanks to our guests, Michael, Julia, and Pascal. 